0: Hi, it's Arjun with my first SuperSpike video that is going to be presented by Veriton, and I'm uh, excited to be here and to talk about risk taking. Uh, it's a topic that's come up in some of my recent posts, but risk taking in this age of what I'm going to call transition-driven austerity. Let me get right into it. First question is: Where are we in the energy transition? What transition? We have. An outlook, my outlook for our outlook, next 10 years, coal, crude oil, refined products, natural gas are all likely to grow. So when people talk about energy transition, they usually mean out of something, usually traditional energy, into something else, newer technologies. We are very excited here at Veriton and at Super Spiked about the newer technologies. That's not the issue. The issue is the outlook for traditional energy. And I think we are on track for t- continued growth in our core fossil fuel commodities. And so the new stuff may take an element of the growth wedge, but coal's going to grow. Again, you spend some time going through the basic analytics there, coal is going to grow. I don't think we're on track to roll over oil demand anytime soon, mm-hmm. uh, and natural gas probably has the longest term, strongest outlook here. So again, when we talk about transition, not sure it's really such a good word. We're adding some newer technologies. We're not really transitioning out of anything, at least as I see it. And I'm speaking as an analyst, not as an advocate or not someone with a personal opinion. I'm speaking as a lifelong analyst looking at these sectors. However, everyone thinks we're transitioning. <laughs> you know, and we had some challenges with profitability for traditional energy last decade. So you have a situation where CapEx is lagging. Shale, which was 70 70% of supply growth last decade, Still has promise. I expect the Permian Basin to continue to grow, but the kind of, let's just call it, extremely robust million barrels a day, 130% reinvestment rates, those days are in the past. Some companies are already showing signs of maybe having drilled some meaningful portion of the tier one inventory. So again, shale is going to continue to grow, but the idea that it is the be all and end all of supply, I think there's no chance of that going forward. And we're going to need to get this CapEx cycle growing. And it's Middle East, that's, that is that—is starting to get going. Um, I think we need some Canada. We need. gonna Dupl- talk all about this in, later on in this video, but a broader CapEx cycle, it's currently, I would argue, lagging. And, and so that nets out to what has been a core theme of super spike, which is a super vol macro backdrop. And I really prefer that language over the super cycle language. When you say super cycle, it implies kind of a smoothness that there is very little chance I think we're on track for. This is not the 2000s super spike era, as I called it back then, I'm calling super Bow macro backdrop. You don't have any spare capacity anywhere in the system, mostly traditional energy I'm talking about. you have generally low inventory, sometimes they creep up a little bit. We had a warm winter, for example, for natural gas, but you have structurally low capEx and as a result, anytime you try to grow demand, you're going to have to have price spikes that then destroy the demand and you result in perhaps maybe not recession, but weaker economic conditions and a price pullback that never feels great. If you're in traditional energy, yes, you make more money in the spikes. You give a bunch back in the you know in the correction. And that is the type of environment, that is the type of mindset I think both corporates and investors, and for that matter, policymakers need to have in this environment. It's not about that straight line bullish view up. I do not like the term super cycle, super ball macro backdrop, I think is the environment we're in. Who's best positioned for this? I actually think it's going to be private oil and gas companies. I'm probably speaking a little bit more about North America in that context and national oil companies in the rest of the world. And there may be some private oil and gas in the rest of the world. But I'm going to focus on what I know best. And let me be clear. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about it in one of the later slides. When I say private oil and gas, I am not necessarily referring to private equity. I, I think private equity, especially the larger... Uh, name brand companies out there. They they have many of the same questions and challenges that the public equity investors do, where they've kind of thinking they should move on to, to energy transition and newer stuff. I'm speaking about private oil and gas. They, some of them may be private equity backed, but by much private oil and gas companies, really interesting time to be, uh, I think, private right now and the national oil companies as well. So probably the overwhelming question is, if you have a Super Bowl macro backdrop, if you have everyone not spending on CapEx and basically in hunker down mode. The question is really, do you have capital such that you might be able to take advantage of this kind of environment? And so the big questions is really, who is your banker and who is your insurance? Both, both of those questions matter. I think any company listening to this thing and say, yeah, we have this banking lineup and so forth. Don't forget about the insurance piece and don't forget about the insurers of the insurance piece. And to the extent that whole sector has a huge portion of European companies, you should be concerned is my opinion. And this applies to investors in these companies as well. I think for the banker side and, and, and the insurance side, hopefully whoever is providing you capital is not part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. Um, that That is a group that focuses on um, emissions financed as the core metric and is starting to get some pushback. But if that is going to be the core metric, no matter how much they write their boilerplate about caring about you know, the least fortunate, ensuring the transition is orderly, it will be disorderly. So long as you have things like the IEA net zero report acting like Moses' commandments that thou shalt not invest in oil and gas, mirrored by some of the objectives of GFANs and made worse by the World Bank. I don't think the World Bank applies to anyone listening to this video, but that is your triumvirate of pressure on capital availability. To traditional energy, and it deserves pushback. It deserves far more pushback than does the ESG discussion that you hear today. That somehow has become—I don't even know how—part of our culture wars. There are issues with ESG. I think the part that tries to substitute policy through ESG is unfortunate. Um, I don't agree with sort of the right-wing anti-ESG approach either. But both sides, I think, have challenges. But who cares? It's not what matters. G fans is what matters, and if your bank is part of G fans. It is, it's a slow drip. It may not matter to you today, next year, or the year after, but there comes a point in time where if they're really part of these types of organizations, you really run the question of, are you going to have capital availability down the road? And how do you address that today? How can you be proactive? Who is providing you capital? What do they believe in? Are they going to be dictated by essentially EU climate policy and the religiosity that comes with that? Or is it going to be about focusing on reducing perhaps scope one emissions and methane, all of which this industry needs to do and should do. But where there's still an understanding, capital is going to be critically needed for many, many, many decades. And it's incumbent upon investors and companies to understand who their bankers, their insurers, and their insurers' insurers are. You know, I got to say, at at Verden and at Superspike, we try to be positive. It's going to be really hard to say this positively in terms of wanting to do business with European banks or insurers. So long as there is that mindset that climate is all that matters and counting CO two is all that matters, then make no mistake, I'm in favor of addressing these things. But it has to be part of the total mosaic of availability, affordability, reliability, security. That has to come first. And then, as we're doing that, where can we take steps to, for example, uh, no longer flare event methane into the atmosphere? What are the steps we can take to reduce scope one emissions for all companies in all sectors? But to the extent your exposure is to Europe and banks and insurers, again, if you're a company, if you're an investor, I think you really got to wonder whether you want, whether you need to diversify your sources and in a major way. And to the extent more of the newer viewers are going to be US based and, uh, you know, in Texas and Oklahoma, again, I think you got to look at the second and third derivative effects of as European rules tighten, as the religiosity of climate tightens. And clamps down on traditional fossil fuel. How do you ensure you have capital availability? Last little section. There's a little bit tongue in cheek. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on what Shell should do or not do, but I do think it's interesting. Within a you know a month of the new CEO uh, being in charge, you get the the article that hey, <laughs> maybe Europe's not such a great place for Royal Dutch Shell to be headquarters, and uh, it certainly would make a great American company, uh, but. That, that's, that's for another video. I, I will say, I think it's going to be very tough to be a traditional energy company in Europe. I know uh, some of our, especially my newer viewers out there are based in Europe. And I'll say this, I mean, I, I love vacation in Europe. My wife and I got engaged in Italy. I got a son that goes to school in the United Kingdom. We have family in England. So this is not about Europe as a place. This is about EU climate and energy policy. And I think how challenging it's going to be to be a traditional energy company in that area. There are some lessons from U.S. coal. I've written about this um, kind of year to date, a number of posts it has been doing some deep dive work on coal, What you know, what are what are the takeaways? I mean, I've, I've actually pushed back on the Super Spikes subscribers who have said, hey, Arjun, traditional energy is going the way of coal. You better get on board with that and then understand what that means. I said, no, it's a much bigger sector. It's more profitable. It's more important. U.S. coal was, and I, you know, I still believe that, but I am starting to wonder, what is your fate as a publicly traded company? And, and again, what are, let's at least understand what the lessons are from coal and see if some apply. And I think the first thing, if you, if you listen to, it was actually Peabody had a great analyst meeting last November, no debt. Um, I, I have favored a fortress balance sheet, which I probably left a little ill-defined, and I think it implies a low level of debt. They're saying no debt. And I do wonder if this sector, or at least some companies have to get there. No obligations. This is the one that I think is often forgotten. Again, think about insurance. Um, Is those insurance markets, are they going to be there? And it's one thing if you're a larger company and you can self-assure, and these are more kind of annoyances or theoretical questions. I think at the smaller end of the spectrum, to the extent you need insurance for bank financing or or other reasons, um, maybe there's self-insurance for the industry. I think people are going to start thinking through all the other obligations that are out there. And free cash flow is king. We already now know that in the oil and gas sector, but really thinking about how do you self-finance, and especially if you want to do stuff and you don't want to be dependent on external capital providers, how do you generate so much free cash flow, especially during the spike periods that you essentially save up to, I'll just simplistically say, counter-cyclically invest during the down periods. So oil and gas industry has historically been known as being risk takers. I think that term wildcatters fairly literal. And again. There's nothing I'm saying that says we're trying to get back to drill, baby, drill. What I am arguing for is some element of risk taking. Where has it gone? Where are the risk takers? It's not for everybody, but it's for some of you out there. And I think we'd like to, to see where that is. So let, let's look at the publicly traded universe. If you're dealing with any of the main investors, they're telling you no new CapEx, don't waste my money. You wasted my money last decade, and I'm not sure if the business is going away due to net zero don't waste my money. And I, I get that pressure. It's in part to serve. The returns were terrible last decade. I documented a 0% return on capital. Zero is a really low number. Got to be better. Okay. And nothing I'm saying, I, I do get some critique from my former investor friends. Hey, don't give these guys a green light to start spending money again. What are you doing, Arjun? And I say, listen, I'm not giving anyone a green light. I am not in favor of Drill Baby Drill. I'm not in favor of 130% reinvestment rates and all that came with it. I'm a return on capital person at heart. But to have sustainable returns, to be a going concern company, you're going to have to take some risk. And let's say that's not what your objective is. Like maybe you're a private company. There are going to be opportunities where everyone is in hunker down mode that I think are going to be interesting. And it's not going to be the public companies doing that because they're not allowed to and really no one's been willing to buck that trend. I get it. I lived in that world. It's going to create opportunity. And what I believe or know or think um, is that we are early in the cycle and we're set up for an extended supply-demand mismatch, which again, does not mean super cycle. If we don't have CapEx, it's going to be super vol. You're going to have price spikes followed by price bus. But there's still a fundamental mismatch. Oh, is still growing. Who knew coal was going to still grow? Oil is going to grow, or at least try to grow this decade. And natural gas has got you know twenty plus years, maybe more. I mean, whenever population growth rolls over of future demand growth. And so again, there's going to be opportunities to take risk. If you're going to spend on capex, mega projects or M and A, it's got to be better to do it early in the cycle, not late in the cycle. If you have a group of investors. You have a group of corporates, what does everyone say? I cannot stand when people pro cyclically invest, don't invest with the cycle. We're at a time now where, again, most people are still in hunker down mode. It's got to be better to do it earlier in the cycle. And this is not a comment, again, for every company that is out there. It's it's really for best in class or folks where there might be a differential opportunity to take risk. And they're going to be different opportunities and different approaches for different companies. There's no one size fits all. Not everyone should be a risk taker. I wrote about it. I think last note of the note before liquidation while you wait is certainly a viable strategy or should be the strategy for a bunch. I'm not talking about not generating free cash flow. I'm not talking about destroying your returns on capital. I'm just saying when you do the right now, you're, everyone's in a hunker down mode, yet you have a fighting chance to, to have a differential opportunity. I think the last main slide I wanted to go through would be thinking about who is best positioned. I'm going to highlight private oil and gas, and the NOCs. And I think with the public companies, you got to have to ask yourself, what is the point? If you do not have superior access to capital, if investors are saying, I want no part of that sector, I'm going to put a really low multiple on you while you are publicly traded, and you do no longer have a premium valuation, you can't really do secondary offerings or IPOs, or whatever, maybe that'll come back. But for the time being, there is a little bit of a question of what's the point? Now, for the largest companies out there, it is meaningful to be a large portion of the S and P 500 or your equivalent international index. So for them, there is an irrelevance in the largest companies. I think there's a whole smattering of smaller and mid-sized companies where I'm not arguing that they should all go private. I don't. That's not. It's not going to be possible. I don't think with capital availability today. But for those of you that are private oil and gas companies, I, I do think um, you really need to kind of. Dive into that checklist of does it make sense to go public? There's some positives of being public, but today there are a whole bunch of negatives out there as well. And again, it's to me the number one question is are you able to take risk and do you have capital availability as a private company? Um, if you do, what do you what are you getting by being public? You're getting grief, is what you're getting. There are lots of different ways to be a private oil and gas company. So when you're public, it's not formulaic, but there's, I think, more of a limit to what you can do. You kind of have to fall into one of these buckets. Let me me do it by an example. Let's just say that you thought there were going to be price spikes, that's my personal view, and that there's some long-life properties in some out-of-favor basin that you can buy at a very good price, you're required all prices low, you're able to finance it and what have you, and you just see it as a reasonable risk reward, flat, low decline assets, not much in terms of maintenance. There's, you get skewered doing this as a public company. Hey, you're going out of basin, you're wasting money, you're empire building, what have you. You think about public companies with price spikes. Your multiples compressing, and then I, as an investor, have to sit there and wonder, am I going to get 50, 75, 100% it back in the variable dividend model? Whereas a private company, it's much clearer how much do I want to save up? I'll dividend the rest whatever the case may be. There it's just one example. I don't know if that's a good example or not. But there's a number of things you don't get to do as a public company. Often relate to kind of unique risk taking opportunities. This is not for every private company. This is just one example. If you're an NOC, you're at a time where you do not have a lot of competition around the world. And as I commented on earlier. With shale, I think showing some signs of not, it, it's unlikely to be 70, 70% of supply growth. Um, there's going to be opportunities in the rest of the world to supplement that. And it should be some of the larger publicly traded companies, even some of the mid-sized ones. I think the NOCs are the ones where they're kind of sticking to their countries. And there's some excellent, if you're adnoc I, I get why you'd want to do UAE oil and gas. It's low cost. It's going to be low carbon, by the way. Good for them, uh, Aramco and so forth. I do wonder about some of the Asian NOCs, Indian companies, as an example, come to mind. How do you think about securing your country's resources uh, at a time when there really isn't um, major global competition? And I think the major oils can be the publicly traded U.S. versions and maybe European, but I don't know, uh, U.S. versions of the NOCs. Investors don't want spending. They don't want mega projects they don't, they don't want anything. I get it. Um, there may be opportunity for someone to buck that trend and we'll see. I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy. Uh, but the major oils are the other ones that I think have a chance to play in that sandbox they historically have. They've driven it. Uh, maybe that will come back at some point in time. So I'll end this video as I do all my videos on a personal note, and I want to address the topic of Unretirement? Why would you possibly want to unretire, especially when you had a nice portfolio of board and advisory work? And it really started kind of over the last couple of years with my kind of extreme dislike or aversion to how most people talk about energy transition. I definitely don't like how, in the American context, the left talks about it, but I will push back on the far right as well in terms of these. In terms of how one thinks, I, I do think there's. an I think there's a lot of benefit to diversifying our energy sources. There's a lot of benefits to cleaning up methane, uh, which again, to me, would be the critique of the oil and gas industry. I do want my companies to address scope one emissions and do a whole bunch of different things. But energy transition to me needs a more pragmatic discussion to it. We need to care about availability, affordability, reliability, security while we're dealing with environmental and climate considerations. We do have a new cycle. It is just too tempting. It's too exciting and too interesting to be purely in these behind-the-scenes roles with a brand new cycle upon us. And I, I, I guess I'm, I am really lucky and fortunate that I love I love my board and advisory roles, and I'm fortunate I sh- looks like I'm going to be able to continue them. Um, but um, this more front-facing role, unretiring uh, it's, it's a new cycle. How can you miss it? I've always loved. Uh, Engaging with management's boards and more recently now policymakers and strategic investors. You know, I think the debate would be, and maybe I'll pull up this other bullet. Is I could have gone back, or or why didn't I go back to kind of a more traditional Wall Street type of job at a bank or a smaller bank, whatever it may be? And it's that short termism that I don't like, and I don't want to do just the niche of okay, you're just going to try and buy and sell traditional energy stocks or or pick which ones you like or whatever the case may be. It's engaging with managements, it's engaging with boards, now Policymakers and that, that has always been what I love best about my Goldman job. And it was just a question of where can you do that? I, I didn't want to do it on my own. I think there's a lot of challenges to the independent research model, but nor do I want to be just a research person. Um, again, I think when you think about strategically engaging with companies and management, it has elements of what the market will call investment banking, But nor am I an investment banker. I do not aspire to be an investment banker, and that's not the point either. So where could I find a home to fit where I wanted to do that had a different view of the world? And that is Veriton. I I go back a long way with Maynard Holt and Mike Bradley. I've really enjoyed getting to know uh, Jeff and Todd and all of our colleagues that are at Veriton, both full-time, part-time, its advisory board. It has been a fantastic place. And the second I heard, I think I heard it from Maynard first, truth and energy was their slogan, mantra, and kind of what Veriton means. That is 100% what I've been trying to do at Super Spike, but to do it in an inclusive and an engaging manner and to try and find that niche where you partner with companies to help them navigate what is a crazy, crazy energy transition era where a lot of the historical playbook, some of it... Will continue. A lot of it's going to get thrown out and you really have to think very differently. And there will be opportunities to, to talk with strategic investors on this, but I, I believe we have a chance to create a very unique type of firm and engagement. And I know how lucky I am to have found um, a, a group of like-minded um, men and women uh, who believe in truth and energy. Thank you.